Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by SAIT's School for Advanced Digital Technology, an innovation hub disguised as a post-secondary institution where creators, educators, and learners, like you, are coming together to transform tomorrow. Boost your skills with tech boot camps and carve out a new career path through dynamic, future-forward courses. The world of work is evolving. Future-proof yourself with SAIT's School for Advanced Digital Technology. This episode is hosted by Rebecca finley Shidlowski. Rebecca is a management consultant who specializes in governance and strategic planning. She has worked with hundreds of boards and senior management teams in the startup, private enterprise, not-for-profit, and public sectors across Canada. An accomplished speaker and facilitator, Rebecca and her colleague Jeff Homer host workshops specifically targeted at helping startups understand governance complexities. In this episode, Rebecca has a conversation with Jenna Rager. So let's get right to it. Take it away, Rebecca. Jenna, it's so exciting to have you here today on our latest episode of Rainforest Alberta. I think you're such a phenomenal person and leader here in the ecosystem. And so I'm so looking forward to having our listeners hear your story. So welcome today. Uh, thanks, Rebecca. It's totally my pleasure to be here with you. So I'd love if you could just share a little bit of yourself. If you want to start wherever you'd like to start, that would be great. Yeah, for sure. Well, we can go back a long way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family in the city in Edmonton, um, actually originally from Saskatchewan, but my dad moved six kids and a dog here uh, to start a business back in the 70s. You know, I watched him grow that business into something that was really successful so that at the point when he was retiring um, and selling the business, he had 600 employees. So it kind of was just, um, it was hospitality industry. And so it was something that was always around the dinner table, for example, to be talking about business. So I always had that interest. Um, I always had that entrepreneurial mind. Uh, but I also was really intrigued by the whole academic system. And I watched my older siblings go to university and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and something that I also wanted to explore. And so I ended up um, pursuing an academic pathway early in my career, but I always had between every degree, after I finished each degree, there was this thing in me that said, oh, maybe it's time to go do a business degree. Like maybe I should do an MBA. And then I, I did a master's in um, speech and hearing sciences. And then after I was done that, I thought, oh, maybe I should go do an MBA, another MBA. So you know, it's it's something that I've always been drawn to. And after I finished my PhD, you know, the other love that I had was around research and finding things out and being inquisitive about things. I was really fortunate to land a position at a in an institute in the city that was super innovative and that really brought business together with healthcare. And so that really satisfied that need that I had for being able to be an innovator. So that's the early days of my entrepreneurial journey. Wow. What a phenomenal start. And 
I love this idea that you pick up on that you're an academic as well as a business individual. And so I'd love to dive into that a little bit more, Jenna, and say, first and foremost, would love to hear your insights on what are maybe some of the struggles of that unique combination and what are some of the biggest strengths, do you think? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll start with the strengths. Those are those are easy. That's um, good to start with the positives for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, we were. Um, I was part of an institute that was very innovative, and I had the benefit of seeing what could happen when we took um, very simple things that existed out in the world, um, for example, an in industry, and brought them into a medical setting. So, for example, before the turn of the century, uh, in 1999, we had a three-axis milling machine in our reconstruction unit. Now, it sounds crazy because that's something that usually you think about pipes and valves and things like that, that are your milling things. But we thought, well, why can't we use this for milling uh, facial prosthetics as a base for patients who needed that? So having that, um, that inquisitive start really led to the innovation that we developed in TrueAngle, which is the mobility, which is a system that allows patients to complete a home-based therapy that prior they could only do in a hospital because there was a really big piece of equipment that they had to get hooked up to in order to complete the therapy the right way. Now they had to do this every day and come into the clinic every day and do this for weeks. And as you can imagine, um, busy people, this just doesn't fit into their lifestyle. So for us, it was, okay, how can we take something simple like that and turn it into something, that idea of giving biofeedback and find a simple solution that actually will disrupt the whole industry. So that was done. Now where the positive part of, I'm getting to that, where the positive part comes in is that I had that wonderful journey of seeing something that was desperately needed by a particular group in the marketplace developing that in a laboratory with funding from foundations and, and research bodies, and then being able to say, okay, we're now going to take this out into the larger real world and see it make a difference for many, many, many people. And I think sometimes uh, with academia and, and developments within laboratories, they get stuck and they, they stay in the lab. It takes a long time to get them out or they may never get out. So for me, the really exciting part about this whole journey and, and the benefit of that is having this intimate knowledge of something that is really necessary and taking that over into this other world. So that's been super positive. You asked about the struggles as well. And, and that definitely, you know, there's definitely uh, some things that are more challenging, I would say. So, you know, I think uh, there's this interesting that happens with a shift in perception as soon as a business is involved with anything to do with research, for example. And there tends to be this heightened level of skepticism. You know, one day I was a, a researcher in a lab doing research and there was no question about the, the validity of that research, the, the integrity of that research. But as soon as a company gets involved, all of a sudden it's like you're a suspect and people are watching you because there's a monetary motivation. But the, here's my soapbox. Can I get on my soapbox? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> would, would love to hear it. <laughs> 
So um, maybe maybe this is something you know or, or don't know about me, but I'm also a writer. I love fiction. I've written fiction. I've published a novel. And the particular topic of that happened to be around research fraud and why scientists and academics are what motivates them to do get into bad behavior and what are some of those things within an academic setting that do that of course there was also a business part that was brought into this but it it went beyond that i think you know when we look at being academics there's so many pressures on us to succeed and at the core of all of those is money so for example we were in a race to get promotion and tenure. And in order to get that, you have to get grants to support your research because you need money to support your lab. And in order to get the next grant, you have to have something successful to show for that. So so at the core of all those things really is money. And what's interesting is now that we're doing research, but also have a company associated with it, there's this whole other level of oversight that we're dealing with. So we now have to get folks to monitor our data, look at our data, monitor um, how we're enrolling people and and assure that that's being done uh, properly. That isn't usual for academics. And yet the motivations are very similar around bad behavior. So it's been an interesting journey to, to just navigate some of those things. And at the time, at right now, except that this is the way it is. You know, when we think about how much dishonesty there is in research, so, you know, when we look at the stats around that, 2% of all researchers out there actually self-admit to doing really bad things like fabricating data. What? <laughs> yes. And, and if you ask peers, like to tell on their peers, 14% say, hey, I know someone who did something bad. And if you think about this, to put it into context, on PubMed, there's a million articles that are published every year. So if 2% of scientists are saying, I did something bad, that's like 20,000 pieces of, of literature, of research that are bad. And that number goes much higher if you think about peer-to-peer, which is like 140,000 pieces of research per year are completely fake and dishonest. And yet we don't have oversight on that process, but we do when it comes to companies. So so that's been an interesting journey. Um, and I would say it's been, if I had to pull out one of the, the challenges of making that transition, it's been that. Wow, I had no idea there was this scandalous realm of all this ridiculousness, it sounds like going on in the world of academia. And I think this comment about oversight is really interesting, especially as True Angle grows. And congratulations. I know that you just finished a round where you raised 1.64 million. That's so amazing. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. It was really exciting for us. It was an oversubscribed round. So that's a testament just to the team and, and the great work we're doing. You know, and and when we think about on a go forward basis, um, what this says to us is about really developing research partners that are arm's length as well, which is happening. We have some really exciting potential partners in the US and in Canada that will be carrying out some research with the mobility to keep building that evidence base around it. That's that's so exciting. So if we want to go back a little bit, Jenna, do you want to tell us more about Triangle, how it really got started and where it's at today and what your plans are for the future? I know that's a lot at once. So wherever you'd like to start. 
might have to remind me about those, but uh, how it got started. So we had the idea for the mobility came from a series of events. So I had started a clinical trial in, in the lab that I had uh, at the Institute and the trial was on intensive exercise. I'm a firm believer in intensive exercise if we wanna make any kind of change in life, no matter what body system we're dealing with. And that hadn't really been explored yet within the world of swallowing disorders, um, which is also called dysphagia. So it hadn't been explored in the dysphagia world and I wanted to do it. So I started a trial and, but it meant that people would have to come in every day for a minimum of six weeks. And it just didn't happen. People couldn't commit to that kind of time. And so I ended up closing the trial you know, thinking, oh, that's really unfortunate. Um, I had hired a young clinician to work in my lab, um, Gabriella Constantinescu. And one day she said, and she approached one of the biomedical engineers who also worked in the Institute. And again, this was one of those amazing things and, and vision around that Institute where um, we were a health Institute, but we had biomedical engineers on staff because that's how innovation happens when great minds from different areas get together. So Gabby and Dylan Scott were uh, having lunch together and uh, Gabby said, man, you know, what if we like, why couldn't we just take that big machine and make it smaller? And Dylan got to work. And I think as all engineers, it's kind of like when they get these requests, it's like, why can't you make the red line blue? And they're like, well, because it's a red line. And so, but um, that started the whole conversation. And when, when Gabby approached me with the idea and also said that she was interested in pursuing a PhD, I said, yeah, this is it. You've got a great idea. I'm going to go find some money um, because again, that's what makes things happen in this world. So I approached the Alberta Cancer Foundation. They were having a competition at the time for transformative projects and we were successful. Um, they awarded us just over $1.9 million. So that made all the difference in the world because now we could start developing this in the lab and and really doing something, really getting a team together who could do something. And, and that team included all kinds of scientists, so data scientists, biomedical engineers, industrial designers, clinicians, and patients. And so we developed this great thing. We tested it. But it came to this point where there were things coming at me that I knew I couldn't pay for out of research funding. So things that are more commercially related, like patents. And it was like, okay, I have to figure something out because I've got about two years left in this funding and I need to have plan B to get this out into the world. So I established the company and in 2017 and quite honestly, it sat for a little while without doing very much. It wasn't until 2018 when we were accepted into the Creative Destruction Laboratory program at the Haskane School of Business that um, that made all the difference. And that's where we really got our business legs on um, with great mentorship from the team there. And we're put through the stages that go along with the CDL. But that was really the genesis of getting True Angle to start to grow. And we raised um, an angel round there to take what we had in the lab, which was an MVP of the whole system, 
and get that ready for the market. So get a market ready product, um, which is what we did last year in 2020. Wow. What a phenomenal journey to get even to that point, Jenna. So when you think about the overall ecosystem that's building here in Alberta to support entrepreneurs like yourself, what are some of your reactions to it? Do you think it's getting stronger and stronger? Any comments there would be fantastic. Yeah, definitely. I do. I think it's something that maybe because I wasn't involved in it, I didn't see it before, but it certainly wasn't obvious that there was an ecosystem, say a decade ago, Um, or if there was, it was pretty quiet. I think that what has happened, um, and in fact, it's it's kind of, when I first heard the name Creative Destruction, I thought, well, that's an interesting name. Totally. But when you look at the meaning behind that name, creative destruction. So there have been some things that have happened in the past couple of years, few years that really have changed our landscape and have, if you want to use the word destroyed, but they have wiped out the way that we knew things in Alberta. And what has come in place of it is this whole renewed sense of what we can do in Alberta, the tech ecosystem, the structures that are being put in place um, for this. So sometimes these things have to happen. It's kind of like a forest fire has to happen to clear for new things to come. And I love what Alberta is doing right now. And I, I think that with a coordinated effort across Alberta, there's always this risk of lots of different things happening everywhere. So I think that with a coordinated effort, we could just become a real powerhouse for new innovation in all sectors. I love so many comments that you just made there. The idea of a forest fire, you almost have to go through so much adversity for first and foremost to then have this resiliency get you through to the next level. And I know your family is not originally from Alberta, but it sounds like that hardiness of the prairies shines through. I think that there's so much resiliency in the people that have made this part of Canada their home, that they want it to be successful and try something new. And they're, they're not afraid to do that. I think that that's such a phenomenal part of our DNA being from the prairies and So I think that's really cool that you mentioned that. What I think is really cool too, though, is that you're also a female founder. And Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your comments there because I I know, especially in this past round, you've had two female groups that have really heavily invested into True Angle. And so any comments that you have about what it's like being a female founder in this ecosystem, as well as now interacting with more and more female investors, I think that that's a unique shift that's occurring. Yeah, I think that it's really fantastic, first of all, that there are these kind of supports, um, that there are female-led groups. I have met some amazing entrepreneurs, some leaders of companies that are female who are running lithium extraction companies, clean tech energy, fintech, um, health tech. So I think that, you know, really there there are no boundaries for, for what we can do. Interestingly, as as I grew up in my career, I was in a very heavily male-dominated um, world. Lots of surgeons, um, lots of doctors, and and in that particular world, um, very male-dominated. And 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 maybe it's because I grew up with three brothers too. But I never saw that. I I never saw a difference there. It was like, this is the world I'm functioning in. And there was a lot of mutual respect there. And I think that's what I I see now as well in the ecosystem. There's a lot of mutual respect. 
where I think it becomes important to have really great female leaders is that if you look at the, the history, there have been few women who have been leading companies. There are even fewer academic women who come out of a lab and decide to go into a company. So I think we need some great role models because I think that's how things change. I think when younger generations see what's happening and say, okay, you know, that's an option for me. That's no longer something that is over there, something that I can't do. I think that that's what becomes really important. And, you know, when even if you look back in medicine, right now, when we look at medical schools, we have an equal number of males and females in medical schools. In fact, it's just tipping over into more females by about half a percent right now. So that's very different than 1969 when there was only 10% of females in medical schools. So I think it's kind of like, we've been talking about flywheels lately in our company. I think it's like that. It's kind of like something starts catching and then it gets momentum and then it just starts taking off. Um, but you have to have the right things around that. And I think that's why it's really important for us to have female leadership. It's to set the stage for that wheel to start spinning so that younger women start looking at coming into this um, as a potential option for them in their careers and their lives. That's so inspirational because you're one of those individuals that's at the beginning of that big movement. And so that's the hardest place to be, I think. And I don't know if you have any advice that you'd like to share with maybe females that are thinking about maybe making the jump from being an academic to an entrepreneur. What insight would you maybe give them? I would say if you have the drive and the motivation and the passion to do it, just do it. You know, I've had two points in my life where I've questioned, should I be doing something? The first was when I was going, I had this desire to write a novel. And it was like, it kind of came out of the blue. I was on an airplane and it was like, oh, I've got this character in my head. This is strange, but I need to do something with it. And as I started on that journey, um, I had this whole question of, do I have the right to write? Because I don't have an MFA. So do I need something to help me do that? And what I discovered pretty quickly was, no, if you've got passion, drive, determination, you can be a writer. That's, that's totally possible. And the second time I've experienced that was making that jump from academia into entrepreneurship. So when I was standing on that precipice there, looking over to the other side, it was like, hmm, okay, I don't have an MBA. I, I love business, but I'm not sure what I'm doing. And it was just taking that leap of faith and knowing that the characteristics that I know I have, um, which are drive, determination, passion for this particular product, and as well as a passion for innovation, those are the things that matter. And then, so just do it is the first thing. But the second thing is surround yourself with great people. So get a network, start learning from other people, get mentors, be open um, to learning. And, and I did that both in the writing, that writing phase and as well as in, in this now. So I love those two pieces of advice. I think quite often women feel like they need permission to do something. Whereas I feel like men have been historically just do it and figure it out later. And it's often why you see men apply for jobs that they're not qualified for. <laughs> But I think that that's really great advice. And I love your second piece of advice about the network building, because I think a community really comes together to support one another and like really does attract like. And that's how it goes back to your earlier idea of the flywheel, that the more positivity and a 
amazing people you surround yourself with, the more likely you are to succeed because they push you to do better. So Jana, your story is so great. And I know that we could jump into it even more, but unfortunately we don't have any more time today. Do you have any other final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? You know, I think that what it comes down to is sometimes dreaming big, getting the right team around you, getting the right mentors around you, not worrying about if you're male or female, just doing it um, and getting out there. So that's my final word. I love that. Thank you so much, Jana. You've been such an awesome person to speak with and your story is very inspiring. Thanks, Rebecca. I appreciate it. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by SAIT's School for Advanced Digital Technology, an innovation hub disguised as a post-secondary institution where creators, educators, and learners, like you, are coming together to transform tomorrow. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>